Welcome to Skim This. It's time to stretch and chug some Gatorade because this week is all about competition. From the Olympics, where a Russian doping scandal has rocked an already controversial games, to the Super Bowl, where off the field, crypto companies are fighting with Pepsi and Bud Light for your attention. And in a more virtual arena, Spotify, Peloton, and Meta are all trying to avoid a serious losing streak. It sort of has has the sun hit noon on the empire kind of thing. I think that's the issue. And that's the issue for every tech company that's dominant. We've also got the latest on the other biggest news stories this week, from mask mandates getting rolled back to a contentious new education bill in Florida and a status report on growing protests in Canada. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. All right. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up. This is one of the most significant workplace reforms in American history. The bill is going to help fix a broken system that protects perpetrators and corporations and ends the days of silencing survivors. Here's what you need to know. Today, in a rare moment of bipartisanship, Congress passed a landmark Me Too bill. This legislation reforms how companies handle sexual assault and harassment cases banning them from using something called forced arbitration to resolve those disputes. Quick skim. Forced arbitration is a clause that can be found in your contract's fine print, and it basically prevents you from raising any employment issues in court. Rather, you have to go through a closed-door private process, which advocates say contributes to a culture of silencing harassment claims and allows businesses to avoid taking responsibility. This is the first major piece of legislation around workplace harassment since the shockwave of high-profile MeToo allegations five years ago. And advocates hope this bill could open the door for other civil rights legislation in the future. Okay, next headline. The dam appears to be breaking on mask mandates. Here's what's going on. Omicron cases and hospitalizations have been declining, and things feel like they might be starting to calm down. Enough so that states are asking the age-old question, to mask or not to mask. Some of the country's most populated states, including California, Illinois, and New York, announced this week that they're relaxing some of their masking policies, partly in response to mounting exhaustion with the pandemic. And a bunch of other blue states, including Connecticut, New Jersey, Oregon, Rhode Island, and Delaware, are also revising their mask mandates. And those states also said kids can now take their masks off in school. This may come as a relief to some, because research shows that masks can impact speech development in young kids and make it harder for kids to socialize. But we'll note that not everyone can agree on whether lifting these mandates in school is a good idea. Some experts say masks are important for slowing transmission and keeping schools in person, while others believe the virus isn't as big of a threat as it once was, and kids need normalcy. We'll also point out it's not just mixed messages from experts. On a national level, the CDC and the White House haven't endorsed rolling back mask mandates for the general public or for schools yet, leaving states to march ahead with their own protocols. And our next headline. Florida's so-called don't say gay bill is one step closer to becoming law today. Here's the context. Earlier this week, a Florida Senate committee moved forward with legislation called the Parental Rights in Education Bill. And this bill is making national headlines because it's super controversial. 
The law would limit how teachers can discuss sexuality and gender identity in the classroom, which is why some people are calling it the Don't Say Gay Bill. Proponents say this bill gives parents more say in their child's education, while critics argue this would be damaging to the mental health of LGBTQ students, teachers, and parents. The Don't Say Gay Bill is being debated in Florida as state politicians around the country are trying to influence what's getting taught in schools, advocating for book bans and setting up hotlines to tattle on teachers. All of which is setting the stage for education to become one of the biggest issues heading into November midterms. As for what's next in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis has signaled support for the bill. And if it clears the whole legislature, it could become the law by the time the next school year starts. All right, next headline. Tonight, Canada's Freedom Convoy protest is impacting international trade. Here's what's going on. For nearly two weeks, truckers and protesters in Canada, self-dubbed the Freedom Convoy, have rallied against vaccine mandates and other pandemic restrictions. These protests got so big, they basically shut down part of the capital, and authorities even said they were outnumbered and warned about escalating violence, especially since some protests included Confederate and Nazi flags. So far, at least 23 people have been arrested for unlawful demonstrations. And this week, things have only continued to escalate. On Tuesday, protesters blocked one of the busiest land crossings between the U.S. and Canada, a bridge that accounts for about 27% of trade between the two countries. Now, Canadian officials are saying that's a bridge too far and are bracing for economic consequences, while the White House says it's keeping an eye on the blockade too. And as the Freedom Convoy seems to carry on and gain steam here in North America, it's also inspired demonstrations happening around the world, including in New Zealand, Australia, and France. So no doubt a lot of lawmakers are feeling the heat. Some Canadian provinces are now considering easing some restrictions, but it doesn't seem like demonstrators are done causing chaos. And our final headline this week, new inflation numbers drop today. On average, prices are 7.5% higher than they were at this time last year, which is a 40-year high. And if you're wondering, what does this mean for me? It's basically more of the same. If you've already seen higher prices everywhere from the gas pump to your coffee at Starbucks to your Amazon Prime subscription, unfortunately, that's likely to continue. But for some ways to protect your wallet, check out theskim.com money. In case you missed it, Spotify, Peloton, and Meta haven't exactly had the best few weeks. The CEO of Spotify says it will not take Joe Rogan's podcast off of its platform. Peloton making some major moves. Co-founder John Foley out as CEO. Facebook's parent company, Meta, dropping more than 26% last week. That is more than $230 billion in market share value. The largest single-day drop for a U.S. company ever. To get the latest on big tech's bumpy ride, we called up someone who's famous for making tech CEOs sweat through their hoodies. Joining us is Kara Swisher, the co-host of the Pivot podcast. Kara, I want to start by asking mm -hmm. you about Meta. The company formerly known as Facebook saw a drop in daily active users for they the did. first time ever. Stock price fell by more than 20%, lost around $200 billion in market cap, yes. which is extraordinary. Can you, for our audience who might not follow the ins and outs of the tech world every day, give us the background on why this is happening? What are the biggest threats to the company right now? 
Well, daily active users was a problem, obviously, but more to the point, there was a lot of issues aside from it. First of all was this shift to the metaverse, We're calling it meta, changing the name of it. They've spent $10 billion so far on the effort and have said they're going to spend much more to try to get into it, to try to shift their business to this area. And it's a big push by Mark Zuckerberg. It's expensive. And the yield is quite low. Now, it may pay off hugely, but it may not. And so people are worried about that spending and whether they're going to be successful. There's a lot of competitors in the space. There's going to be Apple, all the gaming companies. Microsoft just bought Activision. There's all kinds of people moving in this direction, but it's still TBD. It's sort of like autonomous cars or whatever. It's TBD. It's coming, but who knows? So that's one issue. Another big issue is Apple changing its uh, privacy policies, which is essentially Apple has been the regulator of Facebook. Regulators won't regulate Facebook or haven't been able to or haven't finished it, but Apple certainly will. It shaved a lot of revenue off of that company. It's really impacting Facebook, the moves about opting in to different things. And since Apple is such an important distributor via the iPhone, it's hit them really hard. And it didn't hit everybody else, This is at the heart of Facebook's business model, so it's really hurt them quite a bit. And so that's happening. And then there was this daily active users where people are tired of using Facebook. And that's just what happens to a lot of internet companies. They're moving over to TikTok. There's all these issues, of course, hanging off of that about the Chinese government, et cetera, Chinese ownership. But nonetheless, it's a really creative and interesting place. And a lot of young people have moved there. And then lastly, I think the overhang from the Francis Haugen whistleblower stuff, people are like, huh, this is a fucked up company. Like, do I want to spend my time there? It also seems like they're really worried about employee retention. Yeah. I saw that they're going to be offering long weekends. Is this the decline of Facebook's dominance in Silicon Valley in terms of both their core product no. offering, but also like if people actually want to go and work there or not? Well, it's has the sun hit noon on the empire kind of thing. I think that's the issue. And that's the issue for every tech company that's dominant. And so, you know, we'll see. But it's still an enormous juggernaut in terms of users and online advertising. There's no question of that. One of my friends texted me just asking, you know, is this the unraveling of Mark Zuckerberg? You know, she tuned into the call last week for the earnings report. He seemed tired. Yeah. I'm just curious what you think about that. I listened to it. He seems tired. He, that's why, you know, they wanted to change the name. It's like fresh start after we <laughs> wrecked democracy or we're, we're handmaidens to sedition, essentially. He seems weary. I'm sure the attacks on him by lots of people, including myself and others in the press and just in general are not welcome. He's tired of what he did and wants to do this other thing. It excites him. But he's still got this enormous company. But falling below a market cap of $600 billion is really a problem, but it could help it from the regulatory point of view. I think he seemed weary, like, oh God, you know, and I'm sure he is. I'm sure he is. Not that I feel sorry for him. At some point it will turn around if they can be innovative. I think the issue is they have trouble being innovative. Most people don't think of innovation and I don't and, and, and meta in the same sentence. And so that's one of the issues. People write into us asking, what do I need to know about the metaverse? And I think they're curious if it's just overhyped and how much the concept of the metaverse or using something like an Oculus will be a part of yeah. people's day-to-day. Well, it's, an, it's like very early versions of gaming. You're already in the metaverse when you're playing games, which is just a flat screen that you're looking at as opposed to immersive kind of thing. I think some of the issues, and obviously the Oculus is actually quite good. It's just that it's not expensive necessarily, but it's onerous. It's solitary. That's just Oculus. There's a million other things. Apple's working on one. You're going to see Amazon probably getting in here. Google should come in here in a lot of ways. There's going to be a lot of health stuff involved in it. And Snapchat is working on some stuff. So it's coming. It's just not here. And it depends if it's going to be more AR, which is augmented reality, which is you wear 
say there's a camera in your AirPods, you could see that. And then it could tell you things, you know, it could speak to you. And then there could be some heads up displays. I would suspect Apple will do that better than Facebook in terms of augmented reality. They're working on that. They're supposedly going to introduce some glasses. I think it's going to be slow in coming. Years ago, people said, I'm not in the cloud. I'm like, do you have email? You're in the cloud. You've been in cloud for years. You're in the metaverse in a weird way in some ways, but you're not in it in the way that I think conceived of like a Ready Player One or that kind of thing. Another tech company, Spotify, is also coming under fire, facing calls to remove Joe Rogan from the platform. It's similar to content moderation conversations that we've seen happen at places like Facebook and YouTube. Mm -hmm. Now, you've reported on those companies and how they handled or didn't handle that criticism in the past. Yeah. What do you think is going to happen this time at Spotify? It's interesting. They had that issue, if you remember, with Me Too around R. Kelly and some others, and they had promised not to take them off, then they took them off. They've been down this road before, but it wasn't quite as big a neutron bomb as this one, right? Because Joe Rogan's super popular, and some of his stuff is good, and Spotify paid him $100 million to distribute and be exclusive to the platform. That turned them into a publisher, even though they try to deny it, and they're trying to like drop words like cancel culture, and we will not silence him. Playing the hero here is kind of ridiculous. They hired him, and he's controversial because of a number of things. And it just, I think my take is they didn't listen to him. Like they didn't listen. Like they should probably should have done a little more due diligence just by listening to the shows. And so that's the issue is that are they a media company? Yes, they are. Are they responsible to Joe Rogan? Yes, they are. Do they have a publisher relationship with them? Yes, they do. They like to pretend they're just a platform and that it's just like the rappers that may be controversial on there. And it's not. They're not paying those rappers. They are, but they aren't, right? It's not the same thing. So I think they're going to have a hard time. I think their, their stock, of course, is down. They're already under siege from Apple and some others, but Rogan has helped them grow. And so that's what he said. He's going to do more like this. Well, good luck. If you want to play with fire, you're, you're going to get burnt, I guess, or get Joe Rogan. <laughs> Whatever. I don't, I don't want him banned. That's ridiculous. It's re- no, just but be aware when you have someone like this. And you rely on them. He doesn't need them, FYI. Yeah. Joe Rogan doesn't need them. Joe Rogan would be better off getting fired or whatever, getting moved off the platform. And he could just walk on over to Rumble or Truth Throat Social or wherever and do his thing. He's popular. I want to ask you about just one other company. Peloton Mm -hmm. announced it's cutting over 2,500 jobs in its corporate workforce. Its CEO is being replaced. It's obviously been a really bumpy ride for Peloton. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you think there's more trouble ahead or if you think one of these reported sales is just going to save the company and it'll end up being fine. I don't know if you have to save the company. It's very popular. I have it. I'm not going to give it up. My stuff, it's a real, you know, they're under siege from like Apple too. Like, you know what I mean? In terms, And other people are trying to do health apps and things like that. We had a Twitter spaces the other day and boy, do their fans love them, right? And so the issue is not so much the brand that they built, which is really good. It's how they overexpanded probably in the pandemic. They became a pandemic stock. And the question is, can they survive that? But I think the new CEO is quite sharp. I, I've known him from other, his, he worked at Spotify and also other places and, and Netflix. And he's really sharp. He's a really sharp guy. And so he knows subscription services. I think they just went over their skis and run by a guy who had complete control. And Now they put a professional CEO in, what you would call him. Now he was a CFO, which sort of brings to mind maybe there's a deal going on and therefore you have a CFO in charge to do that. But this guy knows how to run this kind of stuff. I think they could have a much stronger relationship with their community. They could do all kinds of health things. They could sell things. Amazon's a really interesting purchaser for this stuff. Nike is another one. You know, all the other brands like it have been bought, whether it's Lululemon buying Mirror or whatever. But there's lots of purchasers for this really great brand. It didn't help that that Hollywood kept depicting people dying on the Peloton, but that means it was popular, right? Like everyone was using it. They didn't die on the 
whatever on the mirror. But nonetheless, I think they're a very strong brand. It's a brand people like, but we'll see. If you could interview either Mark Zuckerberg, Daniel Eck, or John Foley tomorrow, who would you interview? Zuckerberg. What would you ask him? So how's it going? (laughs) He doesn't do very well in interviews with me. I've seen them. Yeah. What (laughs) shall we do this time? You know, I'd ask him about responsibility and accountability and you'd have to start with Trump and the, the insurrection and their role in it. And I think you'd have to talk about how to be innovative in a new world. And is he, how does he think about that? And is he ill-equipped to deal with the issues that ha- he has created? His architecture has created all kinds of problems. And should he continue to be the CEO? I think a lot of people think so. And so, you know, what next, Mark? What next, Mark? Yeah. Kara, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Okay, it feels like we've been talking a lot about football recently on the show. But the Super Bowl is on Sunday, which means this might be our last time talking about it for a while. So bear with us one more time. The Super Bowl is being held in Los Angeles. On the field, the LA Rams and the Cincinnati Bengals will face off. During the halftime show, Mary J. Blige, Eminem, and Dr. Dre will perform. And in between it all, you're going to see a ton of commercials. You know the drill. Pepsi, Allstate, Budweiser, they're all going to be paying millions of dollars for a few seconds of airtime. But this year, one industry in particular is going all in and making its Super Bowl debut. Crypto. We'll explain why the Super Bowl is suddenly being called the Crypto Bowl in 60 seconds. This year, Super Bowl ads reportedly cost around $7 million for a 30-second spot. And it's not just the usual beer or pizza companies that are shelling out for ads. According to Axios, there are more than 30 new advertisers in this year's Super Bowl, and some of those companies are in the crypto space. This Sunday, keep your eye out for ads from Coinbase, FTX, Crypto.com, and BitBuy, which are some of the biggest crypto trading platforms in the world. You might be thinking, if crypto isn't the most mainstream, why are crypto companies leaning into super traditional and pricey advertising? The first reason is they see sports audiences as a major market and are ramping up their advertising during sports games to reach the crypto curious. One firm projects that crypto spending on sports sponsorships is going to top more than $160 million this year, which is more than what airlines, restaurants, or liquor companies are planning to spend. And don't forget, the Staples Center in Los Angeles was even renamed the Crypto.com Arena last year. And the second reason crypto is going all in on Super Bowl Sunday is that some crypto companies have already leaned into other big splashy advertising tactics, including using celebrity endorsements from Matt Damon. Fortune favors the brave. To Tom Brady. I'm getting into crypto with FTX. You in? To even Kim Kardashian. But we'll point out celebs hyping up crypto hasn't exactly gone over well especially because their endorsements aren't coming with a warning that investing in crypto can be risky and volatile. Kim Kardashian and boxer Floyd Mayweather were even sued for misleading investors, and South Park couldn't help but take a swing at Matt Damon. My dad said he listened to Matt Damon and lost all his money. Yes, everyone did! So, whether crypto's Super Bowl ads are a touchdown or a total miss is still TBD. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. A 
city of Minneapolis is once again at the center of controversy after a young black man was killed Wednesday by the police. The shooting has reignited the controversy around no-knock searches and around the embattled Minneapolis Police Department nearly two years after the murder of George Floyd. Over the weekend, protesters took to the streets of Minneapolis after police shot and killed a 22-year-old black man named Amir Locke last week. Here's what we know about what happened. Police officers used a no-knock warrant to break into an apartment where Locke appeared to be sleeping on a couch. Officers say they opened fire after seeing Locke holding a gun, which Locke's family says he had legal possession of. As for why the police were there in the first place, they were looking for someone connected to a homicide in nearby St. Paul, which is how they got the no-knock warrant. But Locke wasn't named on the warrant and didn't even live in the apartment. So far, officials haven't released the details of the warrant or said if Locke was connected to the investigation. But as we wait to learn more, Locke's death has brought the debate around no-knock warrants back into the headlines. Not to mention, this week, jury selection began in the trial of a former Kentucky police officer who was part of the raid that killed Breonna Taylor in 2020, which was also a no-knock warrant turned deadly. So we called up an expert to explain the controversy around these warrants and what potential reform could look like. My name is Sharon Fairley, and I'm a professor from practice at the University of Chicago Law School. We first asked Fairley to remind us what a no-knock warrant is in the first place. Starting from the very, very beginning, going back in history, it was by and large presumed that law enforcement would knock and announce themselves before they would go bashing into somebody's house to execute a warrant. And part of it, you know, has to do with the idea of right now our constitution says, you know, we have the Fourth Amendment, which says that we are protected from unreasonable search and seizure. Now, that being said, there are some circumstances in, in which doing so puts law enforcement at risk from a safety perspective. And so we've created this process whereby law enforcement can say, look, there are circumstances which exist that make us believe that it would be really risk to us if we knock and announce. So we're going to ask you, meaning ask the judge who's approving this warrant to say, look, you don't have to knock and announce. You can just go ahead and enter. The goal of a no-knock warrant is to give people no time to react. And these types of raids can often escalate quickly into high-risk scenarios for property damage and death and can even target the wrong people entirely. A New York Times investigation found that at least 81 civilians and 13 law enforcement officers have died in no-knock and quick-knock raids between 2010 and 2016. And Fairley told us we can attribute some of those numbers to poor police planning. When law enforcement is preparing for an operation like this, they're supposed to conduct enough investigation that they should have some understanding of what situation they're going to confront when they enter this home. They should have done their homework, right, to sort of say, who's going to be there? Do we expect the person to be armed? So many of these incidents go awry because that planning was was not sufficient or well thought through. No-knock warrants are supposed to be used sparingly, but some say they've actually become increasingly more common, especially in drug cases. Some estimates say around 20,000 to 80,000 no-knock warrants occur annually, up from just a few thousand back in the 1980s. So we asked fairly, if no-knock warrants are becoming more common, what could reform look like? You hear 
the term uh, ban on no-name warrants. And I, I think that is unlikely to happen in most jurisdictions because, frankly, there are going to be some situations in which law enforcement has a very legitimate concern that there's a safety issue. But we want to ensure that that's the exception and not the rule. And so the idea is to come up with criteria for how we identify those particular situations. And then also there are rules that can be put in place about approvals, right? So that's what we're seeing in a lot of this legislation is not that you can't do it, but in order to do it, then the search warrant has to be approved by a prosecutor and a high level person in the police department before it can be taken to the judge. Some places have already committed to reform how they execute no-knock warrants. Since Breonna Taylor's death in 2020, at least a dozen cities have passed laws banning or limiting no-knock warrants, including St. Louis and Lexington, Kentucky. While no-knock warrants were already illegal in three states, Florida, Oregon, and Virginia. And after Locke's death last week, the mayor of Minneapolis suspended the use of no-knock warrants there, too. It's still TBD if more places will change how they execute no-knock warrants going forward. But Fairley told us, don't look to Congress to take the lead here. When it comes to the possibility of federal legislation, I think we can hope for it. But policing is highly local, right? It's really a local issue. And so I really believe that our best hope is in reform via state legislation, city ordinances, and then police department policies. If you're curious about other ways policing has changed around the country, we'll leave a link to the Skims Guide on Police Reform in our show notes. If you've ever seen Itania or even Ice Princess, you know that when it comes to figure skating, there's a lot of drama on and off the ice. Come on! What kind of friggin' person bashes in their friend's knee? And it's safe to say all eyes have been on figure skating at this year's Winter Olympics. A world record's already been set, there's a doping scandal again, and there's obviously some pretty amazing outfits and music. So to catch us up, we called a couple of experts. Hey, everybody, I'm Olympic gold medalist Scott Hamilton from 1984, and it's a pleasure to join you. Hey, everybody, I am Ashley Wagner. I am a three-time U.S. national champion and an Olympic bronze medalist in the team event. All right, I've seriously got to work on my announcer voice. Besides having been Olympic athletes themselves, Scott and Ashley now follow the games as commentators for NBC on Peacock's streaming event coverage. And while they're doing that stateside for these games, they said they can feel how different the vibe is this year in Beijing, with nearly empty arenas and quiet stands. I think it almost makes it a minimal experience as compared to Olympics past where it's just a zoo, right? It's just this media frenzy and the crowds are packed to the rafters and everybody's going crazy. And it just feels like almost like practice. But at the same time, you know, these athletes are doing the absolute best they possibly can to rise to the occasion and skate as if they are in front of, you know, 10,000 people. And they've delivered with some never before seen feats. I developed a move, a move the likes of which the world had never seen before. They call it the Iron Lotus. Actually, not quite the Iron Lotus from Blades of Glory. But still, in the past week, we saw 15-year-old Russian skater Kamila Valieva become the first woman to land a quad jump at the Olympics. And we saw American skater Nathan Chen set a world record for points in a short program. As for Ashley and Scott's highlights, 
For me, the Japanese team is so strong. We have Okaba Higuchi, who actually skated the short program in the team event. But then you also have Kauri, who is just this technical powerhouse. And I cannot wait to see what the women do in the individual event to see just where women's figure skating is being pushed right now. I'm so happy I'm retired. Like, I'm so happy I'm not competing against these women because they are so fierce. And I go to the men. You know, the men are incredible. What they're doing athletically these days is just beyond description. You know, the first man that needed a quad to win the gold medal in the Olympics was Ilya Kulik in 1998, and he needed it. He had to hit that one quad. And now Nathan Chen has taken the sport to another stratosphere, five or six quads in his long program, and, and does the hardest quad combination in the second half of his short program when his legs are most tired. So Nathan is, has rewritten the book on, on men's figure skating, and you can see how everybody is you know, scurrying to try to find a way to catch up or keep up. It's really a fun thing to, to witness. Yeah, and I, I've known Nathan since he had a bowl cut. And I, I trained with Nathan up until 2018. And so I saw him on the ice every single day. I'd be exhausted. I'd have nothing left in my tank. And I'd look at Nathan would still be working on something. He grew up in front of my eyes. And to see him skate out there on that ice was really exciting. I felt like I was going to puke the whole time. I was so nervous. <laughs> but it's so awe-inspiring to see how he's developed over the last four years and, and to see what he's doing here. There's also a dark side of the competition this year. The medal ceremony for the team figure skating competition was delayed this week because of a, quote, legal issue. According to a Russian newspaper, the delay was because Valyeva, the Russian female skater who landed the quad jump, had tested positive for a banned heart medication. It's kind of a cloud over what's so far been a pretty dazzling series of events. For Ashley, it brought up some old frustrations because she remembers the 2014 Olympic Games in Sochi, where we now know the OG Russian doping scandal unfolded. I competed in Sochi and I was drug tested just like the rest of the athletes were in Sochi. So for me, it's really frustrating. You know, we're at the point right now where we can't say exactly what happened, but the fact that this is still a newsworthy thing to mention, I just don't understand how we're here. And personally, I don't really feel like the way that the IOC has handled Russian doping scandals in the past is enough because clearly this is still going on. And, you know, you can't say whether or not this is a state-sanctioned thing. That's not what I'm trying to imply. but. It's just really frustrating because we all work hard. We're all skating on the same ice. Why does one athlete deserve a one-up over anyone else? It, it's it's insane to me. And you're right. There's a reason they're here not competing uh, for Russia, but the Russian Olympic Committee. And so, you know, you're already coming in, you know, sort of somewhat tainted from what's happened in the past. And that's a shame. It's hard for the Olympics to go on with this cloud over another event because, you know, the press is obviously, oh, there's a shiny object over there. Let's not talk about anything else until this has been resolved. But if figure skating is your favorite, there's still a lot more to look forward to. Timothy LaDuke is going to be the first non-binary athlete who is representing Team USA at the Olympics, the first non-binary athlete at the Olympics. So for them to be on such a 
international stage challenging the gender norm of what an athlete can be. I'm so excited for Timothy. I'm so proud of them. So, of course, right now and in this little sliver of history, it's it's Nathan, Nathan, Nathan. But moving on to the pairs, dancing ladies, there are so many incredible athletes left to skate. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our head of audio, Graylin Brashear. We had additional help this week from Sajine Coriolis, and our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the other podcasts from The Skim. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career, with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9to5ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.